0: And try again. Torah Resource presents The Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard. And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb.
1: What up? And Shalom, welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hag. Mine isn't. That's right, it's not. With me as yeah. always, the Hoff. What up, Hoff? How's it going, brother? How you doing, Mike? I'm doing
0: awesome because
1: Yeah, so Rob's like, oh wait, hang on just a sec. I gotta go before we get on air, I gotta I gotta go get this thing. And he comes back with that, the phone book-like catalog for the Society of Biblical Literature, uh, which is, it's not the catalog, it's actually the schedule. The staff at Tor Resource. Uh, 520 pages. <laughs> the staff of t- every year the staff at Tor Resource, it's kind of like you get bragging rights if you get your SBL catalog first. And uh, I don't know if Gary got his, but uh, my father and I have not gotten ours yet. Gary, have you gotten yours? Um, we'll see here in a few seconds. Let me, let me go to the index with <laughs> the V section. Uh, and Van Hoff is in there, isn't it? Van Haig is in here. Woohoo! For those who don't know what we're talking about, every year there is an annual meeting for the Society of Biblical Literature. There's about 10,000 different people, scholars and all different people who show up and present lectures and it is just, it's like Disneyland for I- anyone who's into biblical, uh, anything, anything biblical and uh so it's it's the week before thanksgiving this year it it rotates uh, positions uh, rotates cities every year and this year it happens to be back in atlanta georgia uh and uh gary says he has not gotten his and so uh we're just Every year we pray hard uh, that the Lord will once again send us. And uh, Baruch Hashem, praise the Lord, I have been able to attend the uh, ETS and SBL meetings every single year, minus one, the year that my son was born, Um, every year since I think 2008? I think 2008. 2007, 2008. Uh, The only one I missed was Chicago. And, uh, man, they are just such a blessing. We get to go and see all the latest stuff in archaeology, the reviews of the latest books, all sorts of stuff. And, and the greatest scholars that are, you know, doing work, uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Um, okay, so at our, at, welcome to the Robin Caleb Show, everyone, by the way. At our, at our programming desk, Gary Springer. <laughs> yes, uh, and running our website. And the chat room is Mark Randall. Thank you both for the work that you guys do. Join us in the chat room if you want to. It's up and running right now. We got a good, uh, good amount of people in there. You can find our chat room and everything about us on the TR Radio website, trradio.com. Go up to the tab above that says broadcast, hover over that, and go down to the Robin Caleb Show. And there you go. You can sign, up, sign up for show add notes. Everything. Yeah. Uh, Caleb, to, our,
0: to the Robin Caleb link site, uh, ask our enemies button. <laughs> and what we do you click there and what we post is like the most recent negative things that we found on the <laughs> internet. And then we have the hate th- mail.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: The ask our enemies kind of thing.
1: So um yeah, uh I, I'm not exactly sure how we should even start this show. First I, I, I should say this it is October twenty first, two thousand fifteen, which means it's back to the future day. What? So... he's Back to the Future Day? Yeah. In, in the movie Back to the Future, when he goes into the future, in part two, when he goes into the future, he puts on the thing. He, he says, we're going to go into the future, and he puts October 21st, 2015. He gets there. There's flying cars. There's hoverboards. There's all that kind of stuff. Let's go there. Maybe we'll meet him. Well, yeah, here we are. We're, the, the future. The future now. is now, man. The future is now. I'm not positive, but I think Total Recall is in the year uh, 2017. So now we're waiting for 2017 for the total recall year. But anyway, happy Back to the Future Day as well. Uh, last last week we talked about a lot of different stuff, mainly Oral Torah. Um, That actor is from Edmonton, uh, Andre says. Which one? Michael J. Fox? Yeah, I Mike... think he's Canadian, eh? No way. Well, that makes sense, I guess. Anyway... Last week we talked about uh, we talked about oral Torah, and we'll get into all this in just a few seconds. But uh, so we talked about kind of the origins of the Mishnah and uh, possibly some of the reasons that it was actually written down instead of staying in oral form and those kind of things. Uh, We got a a comment. This isn't really worthy of opening the mailbag, but maybe it is. I don't know. I it's should we open the mailbag for this? Is a comment? Sure. All right. mail time. Mail time. Here. I don't know if this constitutes mail, as it's a comment on my Facebook page, but I'll read it anyway. I'm listening to this show now, and he's talking about last week's show, which is show number 96 on Oral Torah. I understand that your stance is opposed to oral law or tradition. Now, I'm not exactly sure if I would agree with that statement. I'm not, uh, okay, and he says, my question is why does Caleb wear a keeper if he's opposed to it, that is, oral law or tradition? I'm certainly not opposed to tradition. And I don't think uh, Rob is opposed to tradition as well. I am not opposed to oral law or Torah in terms of saying, no, we shouldn't keep any of it. What I am opposed to is the idea that we can read the Mishnah and the Talmud back into the first century. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. We're, we're, we're I don't believe that there's a,
0: this unbroken chain of, uh, of halakhic, you know, the Mishnah, basically, that goes from Moses. He taught it orally. He never put it in writing, and then it was transmitted generation to generation all the way to, like, Rabbi Akiva and... and
1: Look, See, here, here, you know,
0: that's, that's well, a myth. That's a fairy tale. Let me that's a rabbinic let, fairy tale. Let me give you and an we an, do not buy into the rabbinic fairy tale. Let me However, give me, we use them as sources. It's
1: historical okay. sources. Well, not only historical question, uh, 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 sources. Okay, let me give you an analogy. Okay? Every year, I go to my buddy Chris's house for the Super Bowl. Okay? Tradition. Uh, yeah, tradition. Um, so... It's, it's a good time. There's not a lot of people there. It's not like the, one of these blowout Super Bowl parties, okay? There's like five people there, okay? I've been going there since before I was a believer. There's a lot of uh, profanity that usually gets thrown around from time to time, depending on who's playing. Uh, not from me, but from other people. And my buddy Chris, he makes these uh, hot wings, habanero hot wings, that I'm not joking. Uh, they are unbelievably hot. And you have to eat them so fast. like you, You'll get three on your plate and you eat them as fast as possible so, so that you can get them down before the heat actually hits because once the heat hits, you're not eating anymore. You're like <laughs> sitting over the, the sink, like shoveling water into your mouth. They're so hot. It's you great. chase that with milk or sour cream or something. Yeah, exactly. Now, I've done this for years. I've gone to Chris's house for years. Now, if somebody said, yes, this Super Bowl party... At Chris's house has been going on since the very first Super Bowl party, or, or since the very first Super Bowl. Would I believe it? No, I would not believe it. No, but it would make a good story to tell your grandkids. And if somebody said, you know, this Super Bowl party is God breathed, it, it it's commanded by God, would I believe that? No, of course not. It's not in the Torah. Is it a fun tradition? Yes. Do I do it? Yes. Does it help me celebrate the Super Bowl? Yes, it does. But I don't believe that it's God-breathed, and the traditions are the same way. Do I think that wearing a kippa is a God-breathed tradition? No, it's not. Do I think that I'm sinning if I leave my kippa at home and I don't wear it? No, I do not believe that. If somebody if I walk in, if I were to walk into a church and the person said, "Would you please take off your kippa?" Would I do it? Most likely the answer is yes. If I walked into a church and said and somebody said to me would you take would you please take off your tzitzit would I do it absolutely not That's that's God breathed that's in the Torah So the question is and this happens throughout uh you know look at Judaism I'm putting quotes around Judaism for everyone listening on online Look at Judaism today and when we say Judaism I know the response is going to come from Rob what Judaism Let's take somewhat of orthodox conservative uh, Judaism today, traditional orthodox conservative Judaism today. Okay, as a whole, the uh, the messianic movement globs on to a lot of the uh, of those two sects, orthodox and conservative. Some reform, but for the most part conservative. Okay, um, do those things help? Do I celebrate Arab Shabbat? Yes, I do. Do I do it in a traditional way? Absolutely. My family says the Kiddush, uh, which is a traditional prayer, it's not God breathed. Uh, We say the, the, the entire Kiddush blessing, we say the Hamotzi, which is a tradition right we break the bread we eat challah which is also a tradition we light candles in the beginning we say a blessing it's not the traditional blessing that most people say over the candles because we've changed it so it doesn't say who commanded us to light the Sabbath candles because it's never commanded to light the Sabbath candles we say who commanded us to sanctify the Shabbat Um, we sing traditional Jewish songs Jewish songs quote Jewish songs Um, we read Psalms right these are all traditions where in the Torah does it tell us to do that It doesn't. It tells us to sanctify the Shabbat. So there's lots of things that I do in my life that are Jewish traditions, not traditions that are God-breathed. Am I against tradition? Absolutely not. Uh, I, I mean, I could go on a lot and give a lot of analogies, but no, I'm not against tradition. I'm not even against, and I don't want to call it Oral Torah, I think that that's a, the wrong word to use. I'm not against Oral Torah, uh, but but let's call it something else. I'm not against Mishnah. I'm not against Talmud. In certain areas, when it says that that Yeshua should be boiled in excrement uh, in hell, am I against that? Obviously. I can tell that I can tell that the, Ro- Rob's wait, having fun in the, pay, the chat room.
0: But Let's talk about this. What. <laughs> The big claim is there's a romanticization, romanticization, is that the right word? Romanticizing, use that word, of things that are like, you know, there's a book I've got it somewhere here. It's uh, about how art scroll makes books. Someone in the in like a, a Jewish professor of sociology, did a study on, the, on art scroll and book production and how they make these beautiful books, right? I mean, it's, like, embossed with, like, gold-colored, like, writing and the the texture. I mean, they're solid books. I mean, they're going to last, you know, they're going to last and last and last because they're so well-made, well-bound. The pages feel thick and um, the printing, and it's full of, like, Hebrew, different Hebrew fonts and things like this that make the book really, really beautiful, and especially when there's multi-volume sets, you get these multi-volume sets that weigh up your shelves, you know. And this, the research is shows it, it like talks to people who don't study the books, but buy the books because the book they believe the books have some sort of uh, like magical value. Like there's there's merit, there is some sort of spiritual merit to have these books. Even if you don't ever read them, because because their beauty reflects some sort of uh, holiness, and there's these aura these auras around these books that uh, are produced by a certain sect of Judaism. You know, it's ultra. Uh, uh, well, it's it's basically Lubavitch. Um They're one of one of the guys is Chabad, one of the leaders of Art Scroll. And so the, all the literature or all the research that's in them reflects their viewpoint on things. And they'll, they'll, sometimes they'll give a little variance of opinion and stuff, but it's very, very uh, specific perspective on Jewish tradition that's being peddled through the art scroll uh, phenomenon. But people in messianic circles see that and they think that, that is, this represents... Jewish true Jewish tradition. Look at the book. Look at uh, look how authentic it is, and it's uh, it's got all these rabbinic endorsements on, in the front and all that kind of stuff. You know how how Judaica is marketed? Uh, uh, is made. do you know how many Judaica websites there are out there? Yeah, because it sells. There's a whole market out there, whether people read the books or not, or whether it's a mezuzah like this or or uh, Hebrew lettered uh, necklace you know all these kinds of things there's a culture that is peddled it's the it's the guys on the marketplace out there selling their wares um, that creates or, or kind of uh, that kind of advertising builds up that appetite among uh, non-Jews who don't have access to they don't know how to read Hebrew they, they just think oh this is the religion of Jesus and they they kind of get drawn in and hypnotized by all those advertising uh, efforts that's that's my that's what i think goes you, on
1: it, that's actually interesting that you kind of bring that whole thing up because we already talked about the SBL when you uh, the very first year i ever went to the SBL i was kind of you know i was new to the whole thing i didn't know what was going on uh, really and i was excited but i was a little bit nervous i'm down in the book display the conference is essentially over. I think I had gone to, uh, th- to get my dad, and, and uh, at the end of the conference, you know, people are selling books for you know seventy five percent off, and it's just this madhouse. And I'm walking down the aisle, and there's this Jewish guy. You know, he he's wearing a kippa and, and his tzitzit. You know, he's Orthodox. I can tell he's Orthodox. And he spots me, and so he starts talking to me. And uh, at the SBL, one of the f- well, one of the things I try to do no matter what, if if I know that someone looks uh, like a uh, practicing Jew, uh, if they ask me anything about you know my Judaism or whatever, I one of the things I try to do right away is tell them I'm Messianic, so that there's no, you know, there's no mistaking who I am. I'm not trying to hide anything from you. I'm not trying to misrepresent myself. So one of the first things I said to him was that I was Messianic. And this goes to tradition because what he said, what he wanted to know from me was, how do you get your tradition? You follow Yeshua of the New Testament in his eyes, you know, this, this heretic in his eyes, uh, you know, uh, whatever. So his, his question to me was, okay, I see that you tie your tzitzit this way. But this is from a rabbinic, this is a, a rabbi who said you should tie your tzitzit this way. I follow this rabbi, but I follow all of his traditions. He says to do this this way this that way, so on and so forth. So how do you choose what traditions to do? You know, and his point was that his rabbi, his rabbi's tradition goes all in his view goes all the way back to Moses. So he has this line coming all the way down from Moses to him through this rabbi and that's how he gets to choose his his tradition. However, in his view, I've picked I'm picking and choosing what what tradition I want to do, and that's not allowed. And so the question that comes to us here is, it's a good question. Do I believe in tradition? Yes. But I would ask this person back, how do you choose what tradition you, you hold to? In a way, the guy who asked me at the SBL this question, he's right. How do we gain our tradition? And the truth of the matter is that the Messianic community has not settled on one tradition or another and we shouldn't we should not right we should not
0: the point here's the thing what this what the guy you're talking to the person who believes that they are they're not being honest with themselves from their perspective they believe that the halakha that they live by was the same that their dad grew up with let's say and so from their view this is the way it is always been. they aren't selecting they're just doing what they've been taught That's understandable. And that's true if you go, but unless you, the further back you look, you see that that's an non-sustainable. How would he explain the diversity in halakhic for under Jews that keep some sort of halakhic tradition? We could find how many different Jews in the world that have the same viewpoint of their practice, but yet they're practicing different things. They they do different things. How come they all are diverse, diverse? if, in fact, they all believe their Torah goes back to Mount Sinai. It's, that's so, why the study of Jewish history is so important, is to understand that that's just not the case, that this idea of this unbroken chain going all back to Moses is a myth. It just doesn't exist. What we do have is evidence from the from the Second Temple period makes it obvious. We have all sorts of different groups that are arguing over the, how to interpret things. And after the temple was destroyed, the rabbis are in cahoots with Rome, and they're the ones that, that through their relationship with the empire, are set up to start selecting. That's when they start making the selections of what they're going to codify as in the Mishnah and start teaching to people. But But to say that there was no selection process is a fantasy. That guy
1: he's not being intellectually honest. The house goy. Yeah. So the the question the question goes back to okay, then how would we choose our tradition? You know, or, you know, I, I want to create. We yeah, create the tradition. And I want to make
0: That's the that's the, the truth of the matter is that every generation creates. Why? Because every generation, is, the world is slightly different and the new generation is responding to, to a different set of, of uh, environmental and you know, political and historical economic situations that the prior generation didn't have to deal with. And so what this new generation does is, you know, they're equipped with some basic tools, but then they have to build the new, uh,
1: build what the tradition is. I think, yeah, and I think that traditions, I I think, I want to make it abundantly clear. I'm not opposed to traditions. I'm not opposed to even the missionary of the Talmud, but I am opposed to saying that we have to keep these things.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm not opposed to it at all. A
1: good book is the, uh,
0: I have it somewhere. Um, It's Michael Satlow. It's called Creating Judaism. Creating Judaism. And he just goes through Jewish history and shows Different Jews in different places created their Judaism. They created uh, from the basic tools and language that they that they received. They reshaped it to fit their historical time. And what we have now, though, in like in Mea Shearim, in you know Jerusalem, in the they've ghettoized themselves. They've tried to replicate 18th century Eastern Europe. Yeah. They've tried to uh, replicate the clothes. That are from two hundred fifty three hundred years ago, or whatever that is, um, because they believe that they can't change. that They need to keep the same lifestyle that the that the Eastern European Jewish communities did. So, well, we know that that clothing didn't go back to Moses.
1: <laughs> we know that that clothing was seven, that were all Moses went up on, on the mountain with payout and, and a black hat and, yeah, and that's black. That's the movie Eva. I want to make. I want to make the movie that totally takes that. Uh, that
0: rabbinic myth claim to the extreme, almost to like a Mel Brooks kind of situation. I'm
1: finding all these sound effects that I have no clue what they are. It's like I just found a bunch of new sound effects that have been on my computer this whole time. You know, you're starting with so many assumptions. (laughs) That's Hillary Clinton. Uh, Awesome. There's another one. What's the other one? Uh, Let's see here. You so Overly certain about everything. <laughs> um, hang on just a sec. Let's see here. Do I have another Hillary Clinton? Again, let's take a deep breath here. <laughs> nice. Um, so, so so, the question is going to be inevitably asked, then why do you wear a kippa? Because my assertion is this, that uh, tradition is very good for us as long as it helps us to illuminate the Torah or to uh, help us g- draw closer to God. If it doesn't, then what's the point? And should we, be keeping, should we be keeping tradition that doesn't matter? We've talked on this show before about things like tefillin, things like tzitzit. We had the discussion of whether or not in the passage of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following, whether or not it's literal or not, right? We talked about whether or not when it says to bind these commandments on your arm and to put them as tefillin between your eyes, whether re- the text really intended for people to put these boxes on their, in their head and hand. And I said – now, I got a lot of email about this, by the way. I said that I don't think that it was intended to be literal. However, I still bind to feeling. And I do that because it does help me. It's something it's, – it's part of a routine that I do in the morning uh, as my personal devotions. And it's something that I really enjoy and something that I find uh, very helpful for me. Yes,
0: we need to – just so be careful, you know, the people who are listening to us to say – you are anti-tradition. That that is uh that's not accurate.
1: Well, somebody uh, somebody's going to ask the question, why do you wear a kippa? How does that draw you closer? Well, there's n- numerous different reasons why I wear a kippa. One of them is that uh well, I think one of the biggest reasons for me is that it opens conversation. Yeshua tells us to go and make disciples, right? And uh, for those watching us on YouTube right now, uh, Rob is is wearing a shirt that says Yeshua on it. These shirts were made by our friends down in San Diego, uh, and they were made so that they can, yeah, yeah, there it is. They were made uh, to start conversations so that people will ask, what is, you know, what, what does your shirt say? Or, you know, what's up with your shirt kind of a thing. It's a great idea. There, the Kippa does that as well. It's not the only, I'm not wearing a Kippa simply for evangelical purposes. However, I have had more people who are either A, in the Christian church or B, not religious at all, start conversations with me because of a Kippa. You know, they'll ask uh, one that I get all the time. And I have these stock answers that I pull out a lot that could try to open more conversation with people. One I get all the time is, how does it stay on? Believe it or not, that's one I get usually two or three times a week. Uh, people will ask, you know, can, I, I'm, I, don't, I don't mean to be offensive, but can I ask you how that stays on? It's a great way to, to start a conversation with someone. Um, beyond that, I, I, I like the take that my father has, has uh, given on his kippa, which is that, you know, my father's Jewish by blood on his mother's side. So the the Orthodox Jews see him as a Jew. They don't see me as a Jew because I'm only Jewish by blood on my father's side. Okay, that's neither here nor there. Um, But my father's answer is that in Tacoma, there's almost no, I think there's maybe 12 Orthodox Jews in all of Tacoma. And so my father has always responded that he wants everyone to know that there is a Jew in Tacoma who loves Yeshua. And that's another thing. I want people to associate me with Israel and essentially with Judaism, uh, but mainly with Israel. And I, and I want them to associate me with that, but to know that I also believe in Yeshua, that that's a thing. But I have there's been plenty of days where I've not worn a, a kippah. I don't think it's command. Anything else on that?
0: I just saw Adam's quote on the shirt issue. He says, the shirt works to have someone tell me it's spelled wrong, and they proceed to tell me the 437 other pronunciations. <laughs> uh, nice. Yeah, it depends on where you live. The paleo shirt.
1: I... Okay, so last week, should we move on? Are we done with this? Good question. That's a good question. Yeah. That's good. Um, Let's move on. Last week we t- we were talking about uh, we were talking about oral Torah, okay. And when we say oral Torah, I'm using that as, in the way that the Orthodox use that, which would be uh, Mishnah, Talmud, uh, and other rabbinical writings as well. But for now, we're going to focus in on the Mishnah and the Talmud. Uh, what I said last week was that I think that the Mishnah was written. Predominantly for two reasons. Number one was to uh, under severe persecution, and uh, as the the Jews were persecuted not only by uh, the Christians but by others, uh, but mainly by now a rising Christianity in the in the third century and uh, and into the fourth century. What you had was you had persecution going on, you had traditions being lost, and you had people falling away from Judaism and converting to Christianity, sometimes on pain of death, but. Uh, you know because of of the fear of of pain of death, but I think also uh to try to hide themselves and and whatnot, and because they were being hellenized a lot of the time, and you had just people genuinely coming to the Messiah and converting to for lack of a better word Christianity. Um, and so what does the, the, Jewish, the, the, you know, the Jewish leaders decide? They decide, okay, we need to write down our oral, oral traditions. What are you laughing at, Rob? I see that smirk. <laughs> Someone said that. <laughs> Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, I think that it was written down to preserve tradition, preserve a sect or a, a, a flavor of Judaism. That's one. I think it was also written down as a response to theological objections from the Christians, theological issues from the Christians. And I think that those two things combined are how is how we have the Mishnah today. Now remember that there's two different forms of the Mishnah. There's the Jerusalem uh Mishnah and the and the Babylonian Mishnah. Okay. So well, tell,
0: yeah, the, the commentaries on. Yeah. What do you mean? Also well, there's the, the Mishnah Oh, yeah, 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 I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, you're, you're yeah. right. Well, and there is some vari- variation in the some of the Mishnah traditions, too, so it's not... It's not uh, across the board, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so, but what about what the rabbis did when they built the Mishnah and made that their curriculum? They eliminated all these other uh, equally legitimate Jewish texts that were around in the Second Temple period, right? There were Jews that had all sorts of different ways of interpreting the Torah, and they eliminated those as options. They said, no, we're, we're the true deal.
1: Okay, so the, the traditional Jewish uh, uh, view is that the oral Torah goes all the way back to Moses, and certainly back to the first century. I suggested last week, and I believe that actually it was a, a, a significant amount of the Mishnah, is a response to Christianity as opposed to vice versa. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. So, um and I also made the idea that it's hard to know which part of the Mishnah is a response to Christianity and which part is not. You know, yeah. when when we oh, go, go ahead. No, that's fair. And there's
0: here's the thing, there are Israeli scholars, Jewish scholars who are historians that are Open, you know, they understand this. So, uh, that, you know, when, you know when, it's a response to Christianity, and not not exclusively. They have other
1: deals that they're dealing with, but uh, but keep know. in mind, we're we're talking three hundred years here from the temple period. So, you know, when when you have uh, the tractates on Yom Kippur, and they're talking about how all these animals were slaughtered, and the very uh, intricate details about uh, you know all these things. Was this, uh, my question would be, is this historically accurate? Some might say, yes, it's historically accurate. But the question would be, okay, we're talking two to 300 years later here. Was this actually passed down or was some of this made up because it was what they thought might have happened, but they're trying to preserve, you know, Judaism. They're trying to preserve, uh, you know, uh, traditions that you know we 're not going to know how to do this or we're not we 're going to forget about all these things and so let 's make up these little stories that are going to be that are going to preserve all this the answer is well you might think no it certainly is truth but there's no way to tell it would be like me trying to write about the Civil War and not having Google you know not being able to get online and and look at all these history books you can google it uh, the, the, what what it would be like is me just hearing different stories from people and and you know my great 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 grandfather uh, fought in the Civil War and uh, you know uh, my my dad said that his dad told him this story that his dad told him this story and and you know well how big does the fish get you know I caught this fish and it was this big but by the time it gets to my great great grandson I battled a whale in the North Puget Sound right i mean that's how it goes it goes from a salmon to uh you know a, a great a great white shark uh these kind of things so the question is how much of what was written down in the in the mishnah is actual fact it's not god breathed so it wasn't preserved like that and so uh do you agree with me on that rob yeah yeah,
0: yeah there's a I wonder if I could find it. I think it's um I'll see if I can find the, the one of the Mishnahs itself. I think it's in Edyot. I'll see if I can find it here. So I got
1: uh, oh go ahead. No,
0: that that kind of is a story how the how the rabbis um envision the uh the issue of collecting let's see if I can find it here. I think it's idiot
1: chapter two. I, we, you know deception. what we need? Hey, you know what we need? Okay, I got I, I got a uh, uh, an assignment for everyone in the chat room. Go find isn't there like elevator music on like Napoleon Dynamite or something? Dun, There's dun, awesome dun, mu- dun, music dun, on dun, Napoleon dun, Dynamite. Dun. We need like elevator music like. For when we're trying to find something on Accordance or on the internet, <laughs> right? So I can just play some elevator music while while we're while I don't have anything like that. I think I've looked for some of that too. Okay, did you find it? No, I'll I'll uh, give me a give me some. go for it. I mean, you oh, can, you I need can, I'm going to need a little bit of time to find it here. Okay, well, I got I got something in the interim. So last year at the ETS and SBL meeting, uh, I interviewed Dr. Dr. Instone Brewer. And uh Dr. Instone Brewer is a uh, is the lead librarian at Oxford. He is well, he's a Baptist pastor. The one thing I can say about uh about Instone Brewer, Dr. Instone Brewer is that he certainly is a uh, is well read. <laughs> <laughs> he's, there's no doubt about that he is a well-read man um i disagree with him strongly on, on several different issues uh, and he's done the trent project he's done some other projects what what uh what he is working on is trying to basically he's connecting oral tradition or the mishnah and the talmud the rabbinical writings back to the first century and he's trying to weed out different things listen to this part of the interview this is my interview with dr. instant Brewer, and i want rob you to respond to this because okay. i disagreed with him on this but i'll let you take it over this is a three minute clip so it's a little bit longer than we're used to but bear with me so probably the largest question that's raised in relationship to the Trent project is how you were dating the various stratum of the extant rabbinic literature would you comment comment on that
2: yeah, I stumbled into dating when I did my thesis at, Tinder, uh, at uh, Cambridge on um, the ways in which the rabbis interpreted the Old Testament. I made some very foolish, some very naive assumptions that if the Pharisees and Sadducees are talking to each other, it must be pre seventy, because the Sadducees were virtually wiped out at seventy. If Hillel and Shammai are there, well, the Shammites got virtually wiped out. At seventy, so if the Shamite position is being presented in a positive way, it must be pre seventy, and you know a, a few assumptions like that in order to date things before seventy. And also, can you pause for a second?
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, he got his PhD based on those assumptions that he now looks back and goes, "Yeah, I was really naive." In other words, and he probably did that in the seventies or eighties when, and he had probably Christian. Uh, I would imagine most of his doctoral dissertation advisory uh, uh, committee were not skilled in this. They didn't have the discernment to say, uh, foul, sorry, go back to work, dude, go back to his, your books because you can't do that. No one, no one was, they didn't know how to call foul on those because they hadn't learned about the big lesson of anach- uh, anachronism then. So here's a guy who got his Ph.D., Based from on assumptions that today we look at and we go, huh, you can't do that. So he could not get his Ph.D. today. He couldn't defend his – he Actually, wouldn't get he pr- his Ph.D. But no, he, he probably could, though. No, th- what I mean what I mean is if he wrote the same dissertation today – Depending on who his teachers were. They would, yeah. They, they, but he, but what, he's, what I appreciate about uh, Dr. Stone Brewer here is that he's fessing up to his lesson. He's yeah. saying, you know what, I learned something here. And you know, Jacob Neusner did the same thing in the '60s. Jacob Neusner originally thought, "Oh, he." W- Jacob Neusner wanted to write a the biography of Yohanan ben Zakkai. So, if you know in in the all of rabbinic literature, there's a character named uh, Yohanan ben Zakkai who was one of the early rabbis, and he's pre Mishnah. He lived in the late Second Temple period, and then uh, into the fir- or second century. Anyway, all these legends. So what Neusner thought, all I need to do is go and grab all from any, if it's Mishnah, Tosefta, the Talmud, Midrashim, wherever I can find a little story about Yohanan ben Zakkai. I'm going to gather all those together, and then I'm going to try to put them in order, and I'm going to create a life of Yohanan ben Zakkai. And he did that. And then later, though, he comes back and he writes another book saying, uh, I did it, but you can't do that. Because, Oops! He, yeah, he's like, the Mishnah is its own text. The Babylonian Talmud is its own text. The, the Genesis Rabbah is its own text. You can't, they're written by different Jews at different times in different places. Even though they're all Hebrew, Aramaic, but they're, they're different. You can't take, it would be like me interviewing someone, you know, if you're going to write about like that civil war or, or about Abraham Lincoln or something. And you're going to go to talk to one guy, and he's going to say, well, my, we heard this story about him. And then you go somewhere else, well, we heard this story about him. And then you take all those stories as gospel, and you try to stitch them together and say, this is the biography. And Nussner's like, no, that's, that's not good history. That's not what a historian does. That is, that's uh, not a sound method. Um, so it sounds like Instone
1: Brewer had a similar learning curve with his own uh, Work. Oh, but just wait, this <laughs> this clip gets better. Um, okay. I, and I said he he's the uh, he's the head librarian at Oxford. That might not be right. I might need to correct Tyndale. myself. Is he at Tyndale? He's at Tyndale. I thought he was the lead libra- the head librarian at Cambridge for a while. Uh, well, he he might have
0: been, but right now he's at uh, he's at the Tyndale Archive. He's the one that has the
1: okay, okay. Okay, here we go. Um, let's keep going with this clip.
2: Before 70. And also, this, I took on this naive assumption that if it says that Rabbi so-and-so said it, then he said it. Okay, that's stupid. <laughs> but when I t- used those assumptions uh, and I divided things between before 70 and after 70, I found a complete difference in the way in which I interpreted the Old Testament before and after 70. And I thought, hang on, if I... If found this complete difference by using these very naive dating methods, and the dating methods might actually be true, they might actually work mm-hmm. and the more I looked into it, and lots of other scholars have looked into this as well, they, they've come to a conclusion that when Rabbi so-and-so, when it says Rabbi so-and-so said something, it probably is right mm-hmm. and uh, there, there are occasions when it clearly isn't, and so there are more occasions where it wasn't that Rabbi, but it was someone from the same generation but the, the attributions can be used to date things. Now, once you've got the attributions dating things, that gives you about a tenth of the traditions that are dateable. The rest are anonymous. But that's okay, because we're using case law in Mishnah and Sefda and Babylonian Talmuds. That is, you always base what you're saying on what has been decided beforehand and what's been decided before that and what's been decided before that. And hopefully down the bottom there, you've got Torah as a foundation, Mm -hmm. but not always. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the point is, you can make a chronological stairway for each of the laws. So if you've got a date now and then in the sequence, you can date the others relative to that. And also, um, you can see in Talmud, uh, they're laying down these discussions in generations and so you, so you can peel away the layers, rather like an archaeologist peels away layers of earth. And-
1: okay, I disagree with this. I and uh, you know I wasn't going to sit in uh, an interview room with uh, Dr. Instone Brewer and uh, call foul, uh, but I certainly wanted to. What do you think, Rob?
0: Yeah, I you know I haven't I never <clears throat> heard the point about how they interpret the Old Testament differently here than there. I don't think that's a a legitimate way to to divide things up. I mean, we've got all sorts of interpretation. Now, I've, I haven't looked at his data. I've looked at his Trent uh, series. I don't know if he's going to continue with that or not. I don't know if he's... Uh, he started with Barachot, I think. Um, he was going to work through the Mishnah and provide... for. Uh, what what it's like? What was going on in the first century, and how it connects with the Gospels and things like that? It's kind of like a rabbinic uh, background of the Gospels using the the Mishnah and Tosefta. Um, anyway, I found that passage I was going I wanted to share.
1: Did you find it in a hard copy? Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Go for yeah,
0: it. It's 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 from uh, here. It's it's called the Tosefta. Yeah. This is a. Uh,
1: Tractate Eduyot. And hang on before let, before we jump into this, I want to hear the quote. But before we jump into this, or maybe afterwards, set up who the uh, what the Tosefta is, and, and let's date it and all noligent. You want to do that after the quote?
0: Well, let me make sure this is the right to- quote.
1: Okay, I, I'll, I'll start. I'll start talking. Then you can jump in anytime. To-sefta, uh is is debated amongst scholars of its dating. Some people place it before. The uh, before the Mishnah, right before the Mishnah. Other people date it at the same time as the Mishnah, and other people date it as after the Mishnah. Some people believe that it's the leftovers that, like you know, the cutting floor of the of the Mishnah. What got left out of the Mishnah kind of makes up the t- the Tosefta. I don't know where Rob places it. I place it somewhere either uh, same time to after the Mishnah. Um, I think it was probably closer to the fourth century. I know a lot of scholars place it second century to third century. What do you think, Rob?
0: Yeah, the, the Tosefta is it. There's uh, a couple, you know, big name Jewish scholars who try to relate the Mishnah to the Tosefta. And it's a complicated uh, discussion because it's, the Tosefta is way bigger than the Mishnah. There's more text in the Tosefta than the Mishnah. And it does seem like there are things that were left out. But we also know that in the Jerusalem Talmud, the Mishnah and the Tosefta are both taken as authoritative uh, voices. So they'll quote Mishnah, and then they'll talk about it, and then they'll quote a passage from what we call the Tosefta, and then as if that is a valid authority. So um, anyway, let me read this, uh, uh, let me read this. passage here. This is from the Tosefta. It says, when the sages came together in the vineyard at Yavne, they said, the time is coming at which each person will go look for a teaching of Torah and will not find it. A teaching of scribes and will not find it. Since it says, and they quote Amos chapter 8, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, But of hearing of the words of the Lord, they shall wander from sea to sea and north to east and run to and fro and to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. So they use they quote Amos eight as a um, uh, the the prophecy that will be uh, when uh, they see Jews looking for teaching of Torah and will not find it. What are we going to do? They say it's a they're in a crisis. Then they deb- debate, the word of the Lord here in Amos refers to prophecy. Another says the word of the Lord refers to knowledge of the end times. Another says the word of the Lord meaning that not one of the not one word of the Torah is the same as another word of the Torah. And then they agreed, let us begin from Hillel and from Shammai. So in other words, the story here, this little narrative from the Tosefta is teaching that okay after the because Yavne is after the destruction of the temple, the vineyard at Yavne. They say this was a legend, right? That they met, they uh, organized with Rome. They said, "Look, go ahead and destroy Jerusalem. Just let us have a place to study. We'll, we'll we won't fight against you." And so the Romans said, "Okay, we'll let you rabbis have your own place. Go over there into this little town uh, called Yavne and." You guys can set up a little Torah school, and then we're going to, you go do that, and we're going to destroy Jerusalem. And the rabbis are like, okay. So
1: <laughs> sure. so, what they,
0: so the story is this, then, that, that is told by the third, cent- <laughs> third or fourth century, they're telling this story. They're saying, oh, well, how, you know, oh, the sages gathered at Yavneh, and they said, what are we going to do? Because no one's going to know the word of the Lord. And then they quote Amos 8. But then they say, well, what is the word of the Lord in Amos 8? Some say it's prophecy. Some say it's the end times. Others say that it has to do with the words of the Torah. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to start with Halel and Shammai. So the idea is that they're going to go back and we're going to start with the words of Halel and Shammai. And then we're going to build our new religion off of their memories of the words of, of Halel and Shammai. Um, Yes. Anyway, that's, that's <laughs> one of these issues here where, uh, well, and we have it in the Babylonian Talmud where there's a dispute, a halakhic dispute, and there's a, a division. There's a division. One says this, the other says this, and there's like this voice from heaven that says, both are the words of the living God. Even though they contradict, they're both the words of the living God. This is, you know, for people who say, well, I value the Talmud. I think it was it was Shapira who made a comment. Like, well, we don't hold oral Torah as high as the written Torah. Okay, well, that means you are, you must disagree with that passage in the Talmud that says that these halakhic opinions are words of the living God. So people are, even those guys are selecting, you know, it, even, uh, Shapira is his name, I guess. I've never read his stuff, but the guy who did the kosher pig, he he believes in Yeshua, Baruch Hashem. He's uh, uh apparently grew up in an ortho- orthodox Jewish home, so he's immersed in some stream of halakhic tradition that he was, you know, grew up behaving in a certain way and doing commandments a certain way. Um, but if he believes in Yeshua, that means he has a new perspective on all those things, and he he he's not the same person right he, he's not the same person anymore so if he goes back and he he sees some of these older traditions that he was part he participated in i bet he's making new selections now he's got a new interpretation of what he's doing there might be traditions that he grew up with that he doesn't do anymore um you know and then how he decides to talk about yeshua in the midst of those you know maybe Orthodox communities is a, a challenge unique to to you know, that kind of person you know that the Lord uh, revealed the truth of the gospel to them in the midst of that situation but uh, he's not the same person so he, there is selectivity in in how he does this or that commandment because the very core, if if anything, even you don't even have to be a believer of Yeshua to read the Gospels and the letters, and realize, wow, there's a, a a strong wedge here put between the Word of God and the traditions of men. That Yeshua says there's a big difference here. Paul says there's a big difference here, and that that permission to question tradition is not fostered inside of Orthodox Judaism that takes Halakha as the word of God. Because if Halakha is the word of God, you can't question it. Our, our rabbi, our, our master, our King Messiah, our Yeshua teaches us that it's okay to ask about tradition. It's okay to question tradition. And it's, it's it, an imperative that we have to be on the lookout to make sure that our traditions don't uh, get more weight than the Word of God. That the Word of God is the be-all, end-all. It's the, it's the, the line in the sand. And that all traditions, therefore, are uh, open for discussion and dispute, etc. Okay, but, so- but it's
1: not words of God. So, you brought up Itzhak Shapira, and uh, again, and I, the, once again, if you weren't with us last week, uh, this might not be making complete sense how we're going to connect these. Last week, we talked about Itzhak Shapira and his book, Return of the Kosher Pig. And we were t- the whole discussion about oral Torah came about because Itzhak Shapira, basically, what he's doing in his book, Return of the Kosher Pig, is, he is um, he's trying to make the case that. Yeshua is divine, uh, that he is deity, which we completely agree with. We've done shows on, on that. Um, and the subtitle of his book, it's Return of the Kosher Pig, The Divine Messiah in Jewish Thought. So what he's doing is he's going now into rabbinic literature and he's trying to prove the deity of the Messiah that, that Orthodox Jews should and do teach within their writings uh, that the Messiah would be and is divine. That's what he's trying to do in this book. So the question that I posed last week and that is now carrying over into this week and will inevitably carry over into next week because we – you know, in in my show notes, not the ones I sent out, but in my personal show notes, we still – I have show notes for this – for last week, okay? And I just – I didn't write new show notes. I just – because we only got to the first – we got, like, to the first uh, paragraph, through the first paragraph last week of two pages of, of notes, a page and a half of notes, and we still have not moved beyond that first paragraph this week, which is good. I mean, that means that we're we're, we're finding a lot of uh, attraction with this with this topic. So, um, the question that I asked last week, I'll pose it again: Should we as believers try to, uh, should we try to reach people on their own level through their own writings? In other words, should we implant the Messiah Yeshua into rabbinic writings? Or try to illuminate the Messiah through rabbinic writings. So I asked the same question this week. Would it be okay to do the same thing with Hindu writings? If I go to India and I meet a bunch of Hindus, can I say, Look, you believe in Shiva, Shiva or whatever, and that's actually the Messiah Yeshua. Or let me show you how, what your writings are actually talking about is Yeshua. And what you need to do is believe in Yeshua because that's what your writings are saying. And is it the same thing to try to illuminate the Messiah Yeshua through rabbinical writings? I think that there, I've said this many times on this show. I'll say it again. I think that there is this romanticism with all things Jewish. If a person is from Israel, if they're native.
0: <laughs> I'm thinking of Saturday Night Live get All things Scottish. Yes. If it, yes. Oh, man. I'd have to make a clip. <laughs> to that.
1: If you don't know what we're talking if it's about. It's not. Jewish, it's crap. <laughs> oh, but it, it's not Scottish. <laughs> Welcome to all things Scottish. Yeah. Anyway, so, okay. Uh, the point is, is that, you know, and I've seen this recently. I've seen this in the past couple of months. Person's... If it's not Jewish, it's my sugar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people who do not know about that sketch have no clue what we're talking about, but that's good. That's good. I'm going to have to pull that as a sound clip. What are we at? We're at 56 minutes. Fifty-six minutes pull sound clip of Rob. <laughs> no, you could do it better. You could do it better than I. <laughs> if it's not Jewish, it's Mishogena. All right. Um, so the point is, is this? Uh, you know, if a person's from Israel, born in Israel, speaks Hebrew as their first language, all of a sudden the people in the Messianic movement assume that they have biblical insight that is unbelievable. If they, if Hebrew is their first language, they must know all about the Tanakh and be able to expand on the, the Tanakh. And uh, so what you have is you have these Jewish teachers coming in from Israel. And it's like the messianic world is just like, oh, my word, this person's amazing. They come in, they give this lecture, and they're totally off theologically. Everything that they say is total nonsense. But the people in the audience are just like, oh, this person is bl- brewing with wisdom I can all oh, I he just illuminated the scriptures in ways I've never been able to see before it's just, like come on are you are you serious uh, and so the, I kind of feel like this is a little bit what's going on with Shapira people are looking past the theological errors huge theological errors in his book because he must have he's a Sabra and he must have some some insight into uh all, all this kind of stuff we're not going to get to the main point of all of this all of this has one main main point and uh and if you if you uh received the show notes then you saw the show notes uh and uh and the title of the show notes and that's really where we're going i'm not even going to bring it up on air and once again Rob is chuckling at the chat room. I I saw that there was a connection made in the chat room. Somebody's like, "Are you from North? Are you from North Carolina or Florida or something?" The other person's like, "Yeah, oh my word, small world." Anyway, okay. The Rob and Caleb show bringing bringing Messianics together. That's right. Okay, so uh, now many people know that we are not uh, we're not associated any, any longer at all with FFOZ First Fruits of Zion. In fact. Uh, My father, Tim Haig, used to be the theological editor for First Fruits of Zion. That relationship has dissolved after a theological shift on behalf of First Fruits of Zion. We won't get into any of that right now. Uh, However, uh, I was sent this. This is from the Messiah Journal. Number, I don't know what number this is. December 2014, 2015, something like that. Uh, December 2014, I believe it is, and uh, maybe January 2015. Anyway, so it's entitled Return of the Kosher Pig? Question uh, mark Can it be that the rabbis use the kosher pig as the name for Messiah? Now, uh, this is done by, they say, Rabbi Dr. Carl Kinbar. Dr. Kinbar uh, lauds himself as a uh, rabbinic writings authority of some kind. And I'm not going to read this whole thing. However, last week, uh, Rob, you were asking what? why did he name his book The Kosher Pig, uh, Return of the Kosher Pig. I will read this opener from uh, Dr. Kinbar. Uh, I probably, you know, I disagree with Dr. Kinbar on many things. However, uh, I'm sure we agree on some major issues as well. And so uh, what? shoots of saying. <laughs> what, what? Adam number one
0: we should get the url first fruits of zion but it's like the letter zion <laughs> nice all right um <laughs> we've got com- comedies okay we Sorry, got why yeah. is it called caleb why did he choose this kosher pig as the title
1: <laughs> thanks for trying to get me back to it i w-
0: but- what did, what did dr kinbar okay uh,
1: teach us <laughs> <laughs> I hear sarcasm coming no, I'm from. I'm serious. <laughs> I mean, I, he, he, he brings, he's bringing another perspective. Okay, so Kimbar says this. He says, uh, and I'll read maybe the first page of this. Rabbi Itzhak Shapiro's new book, The Return of the Kosher Pig, taps into a longstanding rabbinic discussion about the status of the pig in the Messianic age. For the past 2,000 years, rabbis have speculated about what the Torah will be like in the Messianic Age. Some claim that the Torah, which was revealed at Sinai, will remain unchanged. Others propose that changes, possibly major changes, will take place. An example is the question of the pig status in the Messianic Age. Some claim that it will remain unkosher as it is now, while others argue that it will be declared kosher and therefore permissible to eat the return of the kosher pig is the fruit of rabbi shapira's many years of intense study in rabbinic writings that are all little known uh, outside the jewish world as we read it becomes clear that rabbi shapira's main goal is to prove that the idea of the divine messiah is not simply a christian belief but is found in these rabbinic writings this goal is expressed in the subtle uh, oh, i'm sorry in the subtitle of the book the divine messiah in jewish thoughts as he explains going back to authorita- uh, as he explains quote going back to the authoritative sources and voices within Judaism, we can stay within the Jewish framework and explore the nature of the Messiah through a traditional Jewish view end quote. Meanwhile, the title of the book anticipates ra- rabbi 's uh, shapira 's claim that Jewish thinking about the kosher pig is an important part of the Jewish concept of a divine Messiah. This perspective also has a prominent place in the body of the book. I should stop here and say this. Yes, I agree that this is exactly what uh, Itzhak Shapira is trying to argue from this book. Okay. However, however, the other thing that I get from Shapira's book is this, that he is trying to say that the Jews have had it right the whole time. It's not just that the Messiah is divine within rabbinical work. No. What Shapira is arguing is that rabbinical work is not on par with scripture, but it is it it is somewhat God breathed. That's what I am getting from this book. That we can, t- can I, is
0: it is it sacrilegious to say God sneezed? <laughs> God coughed. It's
1: not God breathed. No, I was just kidding. Anyway, uh, good one. I, do I have do I have comedy drums here? I do. Oh, no, we do. Um <laughs> So, the point is is that Shapira here is not just saying, "Oh, look, you teach a divine messiah." He is equating the messiah, Yeshua, with other with the writings. He's saying what what you've written about what the rabbis talk about, they're actually talking about the messiah. When you see this in your writings, this is the Messiah. It's not like he's saying, look, uh, the rabbis have taught a divine Messiah, and then he shows that. He, what he says is the, divi- the rabbis have taught a divine Messiah, and without knowing it, they've been teaching Yeshua the whole time. You see, he did not, he, uh, Shapira seems to
0: be in denial of the response that, that these things, these myths of, of Enoch or Metatron, uh, these kind of things, that our responses to the yeah exactly of
1: the gospel it's uh, in it's other just, words hang on let, let's expand on that so so I, I want everyone to hear exactly what we're saying when the rabbis quote unquote rabbis whoever they might be throughout the ages no matter what sect of judaism they are ascribing to after the destruction of the temple when they're writing their works and it's it's becoming this huge corpus of of rabbinical work what are they doing they're responding to they're saying oh the christians say this the believers in yeshua say this well you know what we've said that the whole time how are they how are they saying that they're saying uh this rabbi said this and this actually goes back to sinai what's the problem with that they're making a lot of it up they're making it up as a response to christianity to belief in the messiah yeshua and Rob hit on it within this book, Shapira is going to talk about Metatron. who's Metatron, what's Metatron? all these kind of things. We're going to have to wait until next week because I don't think that we could talk about this uh, subject in fifteen minutes to a half an hour. I think that this you know because we not only that, but the other thing and'm going to use I'm going to use some terminology here that some people might not be familiar with. The other thing that Shapiro does is he equates uh, biblical, solid theology, with things like the Ain Soph, and with uh, the you know the different levels of of the Ain Soph. So he's a Kabbalist. Well, I wouldn't say that he's necessarily a Kabbalist. What I would say is that he's trying to. What he's doing is he's taking the Kabbalah, okay, and he's saying okay, uh, what, we can, this is biblical theology.
0: Isn't Look, that what the, like, who was the Mordecai did in back in the, the 90s? He had these books, Messiah, and he was teaching the that. And uh, Trim did that in the 90s. It was like to to explain Kabbalistic doctrine as a background to understanding the Gospels. Like you could read... Like Yeshua was a Kabbalist, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, that's, and, that, and, and that's and, then, and that's,
0: and then, that's then, what Shapir is trying to do. So then the later books, like the Zohar and things like that, are used to say, "Oh, see, this is just explaining, you know, what Yeshua did." So you know, we can't. That's and that's just those guys are living in a dream world. So
1: that's, i i wrote a uh, I wrote a uh, paper for Rob's class uh, on what was it Second Temple. Or no, non-canonical sec- Second Temple literature? Was that? Yeah. Okay. I wrote a, uh, a, a paper for that class. And um, in it, I looked at Metatron. This was long before I even ever picked up the, uh, the book, Return of the Kosher Pig. I'm going to uh, read parts of this. Actually, what I'm doing right now uh, for a guided study uh, at Torah Resource Institute, I'm actually revising this paper and expanding it quite a bit. Uh, into maybe ten to fifteen pages. Once it's finished, I will post it on my uh, on my web on my uh, Facebook page and on my website. The name right now is uh, called uh, Megatron, Optimus Prime, Metatron, Ultra Magnus. One of these things does not belong. Um, I might change it. I don't know. And uh, if you don't know who Megatron, Optimus Prime, and Ultra Magnus were, they were all Transformers, and of course Metatron is not. Well, enoch was a transformer yeah exactly we 're going to talk about that don't 't let's let 's not get into it now we 'll talk about that next week we 're going to uh, hold this conversation over until next week when we 're going to talk about what is the ain soph what are uh, what is the Kabla where does it come from all those kind of things we 're also going to talk about this idea of Metatron what does Itzhak Shapira say about Metatron in The Kosher Pig that got me so upset and, uh, and started this whole conversation off in the first place. In fact, I, I contacted Itzhak Shapira about a different matter and brought up to him uh, that someone else was talking about Metatron, and uh, that's how this whole thing began. That's how this whole topic came into being uh, for a show topic, and really what got me not only upset, but uh, j- j- super offended. Super, super offended. Uh, and so I think that uh, we'll make this into another show as well because I think it's worthy of it. I think that this conversation is worthy of it. The thing that we've tried to do, the thing that I've tried to do in this show, okay, and maybe uh, this, uh, this has been glossed over. But what I've tried to do here in this show and last show is show that the, uh, the, the Mishnah and the Talmud are later works. That a lot of them are responses to Christianity, this is important because Itzach Shapira, and the whole reason I, I want to make this clear is because Itzhak Shapira rests on the Mishnah and the Talmud and the Tosefta and other rabbinical works, but he does it with the mindset that these date back before the Messiah.
0: Yeah, that, that there's no response, there's no conversation with, with believers in Yeshua, right? I mean, he, he doesn't understand that as... Uh, and so he's, he's got some reading to do when it comes to him. Mean, there's a lot of new scholarship on the Palestinian Talmud on the Jerusalem or, or on the Babylonian Talmud and understanding them in their context of like, when it comes to the Babylonian Talmud, the, there's a book, the Iranian Talmud, uh, that it's Iran, basically it's, it's in Persia. That's where the Babylonian Talmud was written. And there's, conversation with christians there's conversation with zoroastrians all that stuff is shaping the thought world of those rabbis they didn't they never lived when there was a temple they you know many of them had never been to israel so it's lore it's rabbinic uh folk tales and lore and legal traditions all woven together there's astrology there's magic dream interpretation you know, all these kinds of things are are there. Plus, the, just the point blank claims about Yeshua, that Caleb Buve pointed out. Now we know that in the Middle Ages those were the rationale for censoring. We're not calling for censoring because we we won't we don't have anything to hide. We don't we, we're not afraid of the different documents from history. Yeah, we know that the Gospels are true. We know that the and came the, first came yeah, before all yeah, these rabbinical writings. We, we don't have anything to hide. So. Let, bring it on. Let's just see what your Talmud says, you know. We don't have to—we're not calling, oh, destroy it or—no. But let's understand it on its own right. Let's not try to abuse the rabbinic texts by trying to make them be something they're not uh, historically.
1: No doubt. So uh, just to recap, the whole reason that we talked about uh, mission and Talmud was to show that, you no, know, I think that what Yitzhak Shapiro has done in his book— is he just throws out this, this claim, essentially, oh, I'm going to be using the rabbinical writings, and he just assumes that everyone is on board with him, that these writings date back to before the Messiah, and he's able to read all these texts back into the first century. The point is, is no, you can't do that. And so from the very beginning of this book, from the very beginning, we start with a misnomer. We start with an assumption that is a false assumption, so from the very beginning, the foundation of this book is already crumbling. And uh, that's a problem. But, um, you know, I, I think that Itzhak Shapira's motives are good. I, I think that his, his heart is in the right place. But next week we are going to talk about whether or not, uh, whether or not this is doing justice to our Messiah or, or whether or not it's, it's uh, bad. All right, anything else, Rob? Man, I'll tell you what, the uh, the chat room, we had a lot of people in there today. It was good. A lot of good discussion. If you want to be part of the chat room, go to trradio.com, hover over the broadcast tab at top, go down to the Rob and Caleb show, and boom, there you have it. Um, yeah, so next week we will talk about Metatron and Kabla and all these kind of weird zany things and uh, we hope that you join us and send us emails Hag at torresource.com rvanhoff at torresource.com all we're trying to do people is start discussion that uplifts our great God and Savior Yeshua the Messiah